run cleaner than any baseball business has ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Ready for hour number two of the program. Lots to go over. Um, I think really the whole first hour, and I think I really kind of, you know, did my thing when it comes to, you know, I, you know, I say I'm not biased towards the Mets, but I think when it comes to my show, I mean, I bleed, obviously, the blue of the team, and really what comes out is mostly Mets, and I, I don't want to, I don't want the show to be about that. I want, I want to get a hold of every fan base, every team, really every fan of every team needs to be tuning into the past ball show, and I'm actually going to open things up a little bit. I'm actually going to use my backup number of uh, for some phone calls. It's 201-257-5650. Um, possibly Herm Winningham might be joining us within this hour. Um, if he does, that'd be great. Got lots to go over with him. Uh, if not, I just, I, I want to, you know, I'm not going to throw the number out there a lot, but one, once again, I'll throw it in 201-257-5650. If you want to get in a past ball show, really anything baseball related, we'll talk about. Um, I'm going to hit a couple topics that I've went over with my blog. And if you check out my website, johnpiele.com. I uh, got my bases empty blog, which I basically post an article, something baseball related every day. And if you go back, I mean, my blog's been going on for a better part of the last year. And listen, I'm passionate about it. I get up, you know, get in the morning, I get up and I'm pretty much writing something about baseball every day because that's all I think about. And I know there's a lot of you guys out there like me that feel the same way, that are nuts, that are fanatical, that, you know, just can't get enough. Major League Baseball, and I know some people are like that with football or basketball or hockey or other sports, but baseball is my thing, and that's all I think about. And the bottom line is, you want to, you know, you want to have a discussion about baseball. You need to be tuning in to this show. And I told you some good guests coming on next week. We're definitely going to have players on pretty much every week now. Uh, Paul Spiljarek joined us in the first hour, former left-hand pitcher for the, the uh, Toronto Blue Jays, amongst other teams. And I'm going to start jumping around a little bit. And as you saw just recently, the Kansas City Royals designated left-hand pitcher Jonathan Sanchez for assignment. And, of course, Sanchez, the left-hand pitcher, picked up by the Royals to kind of fortify the rotation a little bit. But he came over from San Francisco in exchange for Melky Cabrera. And, obviously, anybody that you know has a clue will see that things have not worked out for the Royals in this trade. And, obviously, the Giants... You know, not only get are getting a player that's playing every day for them, but they got a guy who is duplicating his season from last year, has made the all-star team, and won the all-star game MVP in exchange for a pitcher who is may very well be on his way out in Kansas City. And I think, you know, obviously he has to pass through waivers. I got a feeling that a team will pick him up on waivers. I mean, there's got to be a team with a 40-man roster spot open that'll take a flyer on Jonathan Sanchez. If not, you know, maybe the Royals try to outright him down in the minors, but I don't think it's going to happen. But what I got about in my article was pretty much Jonathan Sanchez, you know, a guy who was part of the World Series championship, Giants who won in 2010, threw a no-hitter that season, is turning into Oliver Perez. And he really has become Oliver Perez. And I'll tell you, the striking similarities between the two guys, I think, is unbelievable. I mean, you look at, you know, Jonathan Sanchez right now is 29 years old. Oliver Perez right now is 31, but obviously started his downward spiral 
when he was in his late 20s, whether it was 27, 28, 29. And, of course, with Perez, it started when he signed that big contract with the Mets before the 2010 season. And his, two, you know, his numbers prior to that were very good. 2007, after he was acquired from the Pirates in that uh, deadline deal in exchange for Xavier Nady, of course, Roberto Hernandez also came to the Mets in that same trade. He was kind of a throw-in because the Pirates had given up on him. But he did his job. Oliver Perez, for the 2007 season, won 15 games for the Mets. 356 ERA and 29 starts, 174 strikeouts and 177 innings. So he's pretty much a strikeout an inning. And then the numbers went down a little bit, but they didn't go down crazy. I think you overrate the 10-7 and record in 2008 a little bit, and I do understand that. I do think it's a little bit misleading because it didn't speak to the volume of how well he pitched because he did have a good season. With the 10-7 and record, a 422 ERA, yes, that was up from the 2007 season, but he made 34 starts. He, you know, he, he went out there every day. He even pitched well in the last game of the season when the Mets blew that incredible lead that they had to not make the playoffs in 2007, which you know, that's a whole other subject. But you know, at 194 innings, 180 strikeouts, but did lead the league in walks with 105. And then, of course, he becomes a free agent after 2008, signs the three-year contract in 2009, goes 3-4 and four with a 682 ERA and 14 starts, of course, had a couple of disabled list problems, you know, with the knee, I think it was. Um, 62 strikeouts in 66 innings, so he was on pace strikeout-wise, but was pitching terribly. And it just never went up for him. And unfortunately, Jonathan Sanchez is in the same spot right now when it comes to, you know, when it comes to, you know, really where he's at in his career. I mean, is he going to be Oliver Perez? Is he ever going to be able to get above where he's gotten to right now and you look at his 2010 season, and I'll tell you, I'll throw these numbers out, which I think are very interesting. 2010, Jonathan Sanchez, 13-9 and nine in 33 starts with a 3.07 ERA, 193 innings, 205 strikeouts. So he's over a strikeout an inning, 96 walks, which led the league. And I do throw that in there because Oliver Perez also led the league in walks in 2008. With 105. So maybe that was the beginning sign of what was to come. But last year was a disappointment, but he was hurt. He did have some injuries. He was 4 and 7 in 19 games with a 426 ERA, 102 strikeouts, and 101 in a third innings pitch. So he's still on the strikeout and inning pace. And the Giants decide that they 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 felt like they could make a move. Obviously, they needed offense. If you were talking about one thing that cost the San Francisco Giants the opportunity to make it back to the postseason last year, it was the lack of offense. They had probably a classic offense, which failed miserably, even with the acquisition of Carlos Beltran. Of course, the Buster Posey injury had something to do with it. Of course, some not-so-good seasons from guys like Aubrey Huff and Cody Ross and guys like that who carried the team the year before, particularly in September and October. But this was a colossal failure for the team offensively. A guy like Tim Lincecum goes 13-14 and 14 with a really low ERA. And there's no reason for him to have a record like that as well as he pitched last year. Now, Lincecum of 2012, yeah, that's a different story. And we could get into that later or another time. But the bottom line is the Giants failed last season because they didn't get their, their job done offensively. 
So they go out there and they make the trade with the Mets for Angel Pagan, which has turned out to be a very good trade for them. They gave up Andres Torres, a guy who had a good 2010, but kind of peaked at that time. And you could see you know, bits and pieces of him being an okay player, but he is not going to do what Angel Pagan has done with the Giants this year and what Angel Pagan did in the past with the Mets. So that, that's a trade that obviously worked out for him. It's helped him out offensively. And obviously the trade that has really made them the favorites in the National League West, and I do think that they are the favorites now over the Dodgers, a team that I've been very high on all season. Even in the offseason, I thought the Dodgers had a very good chance of winning this division. And honestly, with the Major League predictions that I made this year, I've been wrong on just about all of them. The one that I'm kind of holding up to, other than the Yankees, <laughs> are the Dodgers in the National League West. And I do have the Dodgers and the Giants being kind of equal. But the Giants have done really a very good job upgrading their offense. And a guy like Melky Cabrera, uh, who I hadn't really started to believe in until this year, when he duplicated what he did last season in the first half for the Giants, he kind of won me over as being a good player. Melky Cabrera, to me, was the prime example of players that were on the Yankees that succeeded because of the other players in the Yankee lineup. And I said that about other guys. I even said that about Bobby Abreu to a point when he was with the Yankees. You know, you come up there with guys on base every game. You come up there with opportunities to drive in runs every game. You're going to put up some numbers. And I thought Melky Cabrera and his stats for the Yankees were kind of an indication of what happened with that. And uh, the reason that teams end up having you know the Yankees end up having success is because there's always guys on base and you know even a guy like Raul Abanez who deserves some credit for what he's done this year and I do think Raul Abanez has done a very good job and I mean I I do think some of Abanez's success has to do with the rest of that lineup the Robinson Canoes the Curtis Grandersons the guys that are always producing getting on base, even to share and A-Rod, who have not had typical seasons, are setting the other guys up to succeed in back of them. And what you know, what had really happened, going back to Melky Cabrera, is the thing has happened, or you know, it's it's gone on to a point where the team, you know, succeeded, and because they were succeeding, everybody in the line has to contribute. And then he goes and he gets traded to the Atlanta Braves in a trade for Javier Vasquez, which obviously I don't think worked out for either team, to be honest with you. Vasquez struggled in his return to the Yankees before having a good year with the Marlins. And Melky Cabrera played himself off the team. The Braves, who thought they could use his bat in the lineup, similarly similarly to the way the Giants did this year, thought were, they were getting somebody who could produce something. I don't know if they were expecting Melky Cabrera of 2012 or 2011. To be honest with you, I don't think they were get, expecting they were getting a guy who's going to get 200 hits, who's going to score 100 runs and get 40 doubles, which he did last season. So I don't think the Braves were expecting that. But the Braves were not expecting a guy who couldn't even be a fourth outfielder for them. And the bottom line is he could not have been a fourth outfielder for any team in 2010. And that was a joke. And I think a lot has to do with Melky Cabrera's you know, prep work and stuff like that and the way he prepared himself and his work ethic and stuff. But, you know, the last couple of years, listen, you, you definitely have to see that he has is, he is turned it around. And it's a shame for the Atlanta Braves, who thought they were getting a useful piece. 
and end up non-tendering him after the 2010 season. And, you know, to be honest, if he was on any team coming off the season that he had and really what he showed for the Atlanta Braves that season, I would have non-tendered him too. And the Braves obviously end up losing big time. Yes, you know, Vasquez doesn't do a lot to help the Yankees. But really what happens is, you know, Cabrera ends up going to Kansas City on a minor league deal. You know, with a chance to just try to make himself a spot on the team when he knows his back's to the wall for the first time in his entire career. And he ended up shining. And he had a great season last year. Probably the most underrated season out of anybody that played in 2012 was Melky Cabrera's season. 200 hits, like I said, you know, 40 doubles, drives in over 100 runs. I mean, this is a guy that, you know, honestly, even even in his peak with the Yankees, I don't think he could have put up those numbers when he was with the Yankees. And I think the question was, going back, and I'm going to get myself back into Jonathan Sanchez in one second, the thought of this trade that was made was that Melky Cabrera could not duplicate what he did last season. And he's proved me wrong. He's proven other people wrong. Honestly, he's a good major league player. And honestly, I don't think a year or two ago I would have said that. I thought this was a guy that benefited over being a New York Yankee. He benefited in being at the bottom of that lineup where there's always guys producing. And obviously at the time, you know, A-Rod was doing better. You know, you know, a guy like Teixeira, you know, Granderson, Cano, guys like that. They were get they were doing better. And they were producing as a lineup even more than they're doing now, which I think is amazing to say. Because if you look at the 2009 New York Yankees, that offense was a juggernaut. And I understand that the 2012 version could be considered just as good. But one through nine, they were unstoppable then. And we were talking about guys like Teixeira and A-Rod who are producing more. You know, you throw in Hideki Matsui, Johnny Damon, guys like that. And there was not an out in that lineup. And I know you could say that now, that there may not be an out in the lineup. But remember, Brett Gardner's not in there. And they're counting on guys like Andrew Jones and Raul Abanez who have done well. They you know, have a catcher in Russell Martin who hasn't done very much this year. But, and that's actually, you know, I may segue into a little later with this. What offensive team was better? The 2012 version or the 2009? I would have to probably say the 2009 was a little bit better. But the bottom line is the Yankees are run away with things. They are the best team in baseball right now. And I don't think, you know, going back to Melky Cabrera, I don't, I, I, I just think that, you know, the team right now doesn't have, players like they had back then but I'll conclude my point about Cabrera and Sanchez the way this trade was set up was you know you know Melky Cabrera who was not counted on to duplicate the stats that he kept with the Royals last season and Jonathan Sanchez yes he was supposed to be a useful piece was he going to be an ace nah, I don't know but the way he pitched in 2010 particularly in a postseason he pitched a couple good games for them then too that the Royals were thinking they were getting a starting pitcher for a guy who may have been traded for his ceiling. And obviously Cabrera has proven a lot of people wrong, and Jonathan Sanchez, I think, has proven some other people wrong. And my question is, is Jonathan Sanchez Oliver Perez? And the answer right now is yes. Is he going to get it back together? I don't know. Is he going to be back with the Royals? Probably not. I think some team's going to take a chance on him. He's not at a point where he's making the kind of money that Oliver Perez was making when Omar Minaya signed him to that ridiculous contract. 
So there's teams that are going to claim them on waivers. And I don't know who that team is. Honestly, it could be anybody. It could be anybody from the Houston Astros to the New York Yankees. But I think somebody will take a chance on them. And, you know, the Royals may want to, you know, think about maybe making a trade. I don't know. Do they make a trade within the 10 days of him being designated for assignment? It's possible. You get a waiver claim and you say, hey, listen, I don't want to let him go there. Maybe I'll offer a trade. Maybe that happens. I do think we'll see Jonathan Sanchez in the major leagues again this season. And to be honest, throwing my last point in the Oliver Perez discussion is Oliver Perez has made it back to the majors this year. He's pitched in 10 games for the Mariners. He was 0-2 with a 3-6 ERA. He's kind of getting that role as that lefty specialist, kind of segueing into what will probably be the second part of his career. And I think how well he does as a reliever will you know, show how long he's going to pitch in the major leagues. And I think that's, you know, it's a little crazy to see what's happened to him. But it's good. Honestly, I think it's good to see him back in the majors after he didn't pitch at all last year. He obviously pitched in the minors with Washington and, you know, stuff like that. But, you know, here's a guy that's back in the majors. And, you know, honestly, as much as Met fans hate Oliver Perez, I'm happy to see him back in there. But honestly, I look at a guy like Jonathan Sanchez, who is very similar mechanically. He's got a good fastball. He's got some good off-speed stuff. But he can't find a freaking plate. And you're looking at a guy that has not had good control. He has not thrown the ball the way he he is capable of. And he is on his he is on his way out if he doesn't make the immediate changes, whether that's with his next team or with the Royals, to turn it around right now. And it could have happened at a worse time for him. Let's be honest. I mean, this is his year where he hits free agency. And the Royals were kind of taking him taking a flyer on him saying that, hey, if he pitches well, maybe they'll lock him up for a couple of years. If Jonathan Sanchez got the job done this year, he wouldn't even have to worry about being a free agent. He'd probably be extended already because that's what the Royals are doing with a lot of their younger players. That's what the Royals are doing with a lot of their younger players. The players that they have right now are the core of players that they're going forward with. And that's what really happens in a transition when you go from being a bad team to a good team. And sometimes it takes longer. Look at what happened with the Pittsburgh Pirates for all those years. How many different cores did they try to go with? They didn't really stick with any one because they weren't certain on it. And they've finally done that now with guys like Andrew McCutcheon and Pedro Alvarez and Neil Walker and James McDonald and guys like that that they've stuck with at Hanrahan. They finally found their core after 15 years and even more. I mean, the last time this team was even at a winning record, and I'm talking about the Pittsburgh Pirates here, it's 1992. So they finally put their core together. And I think similarly, the Kansas City Royals are doing the same thing. And Jonathan Sanchez pitched himself out of being part of the core. And if he pitched well, if he even did half of what he did in 2010. And with that, I'd say an ERA even up maybe a run or so. He would he would be extended with the Royals. He would not be a free agent at the end of the season. And honestly would have a job right now. And I think in the end, he'll pitch. Like I said, he'll be with the team sometime this season. But honestly, I think it's a bad job. He has not gotten the job done at all. And I think that's something that's got to change. 
But John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, Hour 2 of the radio program. I do have you guys available if you want, want to call into the show. Maybe get a little piece here and there. 201-257-5650. Um, other things that I kind of talked about in my blog. Uh, I think, uh, what was it, the 17th, which is a couple of days ago, was the anniversary of the death of the great Ty Cobb. And what I really love about this game, and I've said this all the time, is how far back it goes and how many different stories you could tell from times whether you want to go back five years or ten years or 50 years or 100 years. And in Ty Cobb's case, we're going back over 100 years from when he started his career and obviously when he retired in 19, I believe it was 1928, when he stopped playing with the the uh, the old, uh, Philadelphia Athletics. Jeez. But here's a guy who, honestly, I think was the best player to ever play this game. And we could get into this debate all day, and I know everybody's got their opinion. A lot of people think Babe Ruth is. And, and listen, there's not, I can't really argue with that. I'm not going to concede it, but I do think Ty Cobb was a better all-around player. And if you look at what he did over his career, and I understand Babe Ruth revolutionized the game. He brought the home run. And he made it a stat, which didn't matter before. Nobody cared about hitting a home run until Babe Ruth started hitting, you know, 60 home runs. When he started doing stuff like that, then everybody wanted to be a power hitter. But you, you got guys like Tris Speaker, who played at the same time as Cobb and was kind of considered a similar type player. Hannes Wagner was a very good player that I think gets overlooked a lot. Um, you know, a guy like Rogers Hornsby certainly has to be in the top five. We, we may not, you know, you know, you got to go a little further to a guy that started playing in 1939, and that's Ted Williams. You know, a guy like Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, you move on. And obviously the more, the more recent players are the guys that are out of the conversation when it comes to the best of all time. You know, you could say a Willie Mays may have been. You could say other guys that played, you know, perhaps a Hank Aaron. But when you're talking about the best player of all time, I really think there's a lot of things you got to think of. You know, the dead ball error was something that, you know, really those players kind of get left out of things. And honestly, you want to look through some numbers. And I do want to throw some numbers here about Ty Cobb. And anybody that's a baseball fan, obviously, you know about Ty Cobb. If you like baseball at all or you have any passion for it, you go on baseballreference.com and you've looked at the stats. But some of the stats stand out to me because who is going to duplicate stats like this? I understand Babe Ruth hit for a relatively high average. But can you imagine anybody in the history of Major League Baseball batting 366 for their career? I mean, I understand the game has changed and it's hard. You know, the batting champion it, you know, will hit less than 366 nine out of ten years. You know, and now that we don't have guys like, you know, Ichiro in his prime and Tony Gwynn and guys like that and Ted Williams, you know, it's hard for a player to hit 360 in a season. And Ty Cobb did that for his entire career. And let's be honest, I think that's amazing. It's absolutely crazy that he hit 366 for his career. 433 on base percentage, yes, with, you know, pitchers being a lot more wild and more selective over who they pitch to. The on-base percentage can be duplicated, and it has been in several occasions. But a guy also slugged 512 for his career. And it may not seem like a lot, 
you know, you look at Barry Bonds, who slugged over 700, obviously McGuire and what he did, and A-Rod and his time, and, you know, Ted Williams for what he did for his career. But Ty Cobb was not a home run hitter, and he had a slugging percentage of 512. And you know what that meant? That meant he got a lot of doubles and a lot of triples. And no player really outside of him after his career even even duplicated that type of approach because everybody pretty much after Babe Ruth came along was trying to hit the long ball. And even a guy like Ted Williams who perfected the game of hitting. And Ted Williams certainly has got to be in the conversation as far as best player of all time. And I, I will totally buy that. A person calls in and says, Ted Williams is the best player of all time. I, I'm not going to dispute it. I'm not going to dispute Babe Ruth. I won't even dispute Hannes Wagner because of the way he played. And I think he's a guy who was very much underrated for what he did for the Pirates. Best ever, I might give you a little bit of an argument with that, but he also played in the dead ball era. He started his career before Ty Cobb. So the era that Hannes Wagner played in was even deader than that of Ty Cobb. Ty Cobb towards the middle and maybe the middle towards the latter part of his career played in the live ball era. And he didn't take advantage of it. He he insisted on being the same kind of player that he was. He didn't want to change things. He didn't want to be different. He didn't want to be that guy that all of a sudden wanted to hit home runs. He did it once. He went out there one day and said, hey, I'm going to go hit home runs today and hit three home runs in a game. So the bottom line was, hey, he could do it, but that's not his game. And you look at a guy that led the league and run scored five times, hits eight times, doubles three times, triples four times. He even led the league in home runs once. He led the league in RBIs four times, stolen bases six times, batting, batting titles 11. And you would expect that for a guy to hit 366 for his career. On base percentage eight times. Slugging percentage eight times. And I understand this was the dead ball error, but this guy was producing. On base percentage, I'm sorry, OPS 10 times. And what I do think is interesting, you talk about the on base percentage and the slugging percentage. He led the league eight times, but managed to lead the league in OPS 10 times. So that means pretty consistently he was up there near the top of the leaderboard. And total bases six times. I understand it's the dead ball era. I understand a lot of the times were earlier, prior to 1920. But I I feel pretty strongly that Ty Cobb was the greatest player to ever play this game. And after he after his rookie season, which was a partial season, he didn't play the whole season. And a lot of times he was hazed. A lot of times he was beaten up by his teammates. And obviously, anybody that knows anything about Ty Cobb, anybody who has looked at his Wikipedia file, anybody that's looked at his baseball reference bullpen file, anybody who's watched the movie Cobb with Tommy Lee Jones in it, knows that Ty Cobb wasn't the nicest guy. He wasn't the most approachable guy. He wasn't a guy who got along with his teammates or the fans or even his own team, for that matter. But the guy could play. And he definitely could. After 1905, he hit over 300 every year of his career until 1928 when he retired. Even his last year, he hit 320. 
and I, I don't know how true it is. I, I, when, when we, when we get into made, made for TV movies and stuff like that, I do question some of the content. I don't know if every single thing is true. Sometimes things get over dramatized to make them sound like a major point when they really weren't. But I'll never forget that one part of Cobb the movie with Tommy Lee Jones, <laughs> when he's he, he's he's at that dinner when he's getting towards the end of his life, and the guy asks him. The guy asks him, "What would you hit against today's pitchers?" And he says, 290. And the guy says, 290? You hit 300 every year you played and had a 366 career average. How would you hit 290 against hitters, against the pitching today? And he says, and I'll quote, and this is in the movie and it's a quote. He says, because I'm 72 fucking years old, which I thought was awesome. But you know, the bottom line is, I don't know if that happened or not, but it was part of the movie. But this was a guy who was confident in himself. And really what he did, I mean, the guy hit over 400 three times in his career. You know, Ted Williams was the last one to hit 400 in 1941 when he hit 406. Ty Cobb hit over over 400 three times. He had 2,246 runs scored, which was the most all-time until Ricky Henderson took over. 4,189 hits, the most ever until Pete Rose broke the record. And let's be honest, if you want to compare Ricky Henderson or Pete Rose to Ty Cobb, you're crazy. They are not amongst the best players of all time. Ty Cobb is. And we talk about the 724 doubles he had. How about the 295 triples? Are you crazy? Who has even come close to 295 triples in their career? Yeah, sure, there were some people at the turn of the century that made a run for it. But that's the most all time. 1938 RBIs for a guy who's not a power hitter. Are you serious? For a guy who's not a power hitter to have almost 2,000 RBIs? I'm telling you, dude. This guy was the best ever. 897 stolen bases, of course, were surpassed by Lou Brock and eventually Ricky Henderson. But the bottom line, dude, this guy could play. And I, obviously, I, I'm not bringing something that nobody knows about. This guy was one of the best players of all time, but I think position player-wise, he was the best ever. And the numbers that he rang up in his career will not be surpassed. They just absolutely will not. And I don't think that's a I, – I honestly don't think. I mean, listen, if you want to give a call in and talk about who you think was better. And honestly, I think it, when it comes down to it, there's three players. There really is. We're talking about three players that could be the best of all time. And you got Cobb, you got Ruth, and you also got, of course, Ted Williams. And I really don't think that there's anybody else that should be in the discussion. And I actually, I'm probably going to put a poll up on my website because I do really, I want to get some response. I want to get an opinion here of who the greatest player of all time is in Major League Baseball history. And I'm going to put it up there and I'm going to leave it up to three. I'll throw in a, a write-in if you want to write in a possibility. But Cobb, Ruth, Williams, gun to your head, who's the best player of all time? 
And what we'll do is on a show next week, we'll go over it. We'll try to figure out who wins in the poll. In my opinion, it's Ty Cobb. I mean, he ends up managing. He was a player manager from 21 to 26 with the Tigers. Had a winning record. Obviously, didn't lead the team to a World Series or anything. And, I, you know, I can't imagine. <laughs> and I don't want to jump too much off subject. But imagine him as a manager. As much as he was hated by his teammates. Imagine looking up at that guy and saying, hey, that guy's in charge. I better listen to what he says. And listen, the team, you know, for the most part, they, they didn't do too badly. And, of course, anybody that knows their history will know that Ty Cobb ends up being let go as manager of the Tigers the same time Tris Speaker left the Indians when that scandal came out as far as uh, the a- accusations by uh, Dutch Leonard that Cobb, Tris Speaker, and, and Smokey Joe Wood threw a game in 1919 where they conspired to determine the results of a game in 1919. And that that became a huge scandal in 19, I believe it was 1926, when the offseason of 1926. And it resulted with both Cobb and Speaker either losing their jobs or resigning or something in between. But that became a big scandal at the time, obviously, after what happened in 1919 with the World Series being thrown with the Reds and the White Sox and the big Black Sox scandal and everything that happened with that. And it was determined that there wasn't enough evidence to substantiate what was accused by Dutch Leonard of that game being thrown. And obviously Cobb ends up going into the Hall of Fame. And really what shows and how much he was hated, he was hated by everybody. But he was respected. And you respected Ty Cobb. And in fact, anybody that followed the game knew how good of a player he was. Because in nineteen in nineteen thirty what was it nineteen thirty six first year of the Hall of Fame he got more votes than anybody and I were talking about Bay Ruth we're talking about Hannes Wagner we're talking about anybody that was not playing at that time that was eligible to be inducted in a Hall of Fame in nineteen thirty six and Ty Cobb as hated as he was got ninety eight point two percent of the votes. And obviously the couple people that didn't vote for him obviously just hated him that much. He was that good of a freaking player. And we'll go over it. I'm going to do a poll. We're going to try to figure out what you guys think, who the greatest player of all time was. I got a feeling I know where it's going to sway, but you got three choices. Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb, Ted Williams. Let's go. We're going to take a brief break. Touch up on a couple more things going on in this game of baseball, passball show. Go ahead, laugh. Laugh all you want. But the fact of the matter is, this is this is the setting for the greatest story ever told. Okay? Bases empty blog. 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 Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, wrapping up the last 20 minutes of our show today. Hold on one second. All right, we're back. Thanks for having a couple minutes. Thanks for being patient with me, to be honest with you. 
Um, there's, you know, some issues, some technical issues going on with the music and stuff like that. And I tell you, just running everything by myself is a little bit tough. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, maybe you wouldn't understand unless you were here because it's, it's, it's difficult. So I apologize for a couple of times I've went to, you know, kind of pause and, you know, had music playing a little too much. And I honestly have no excuse for that. So terrible job by me. But, uh, bottom line is 20 minutes left in the show. We're going to knock things out. I will, you know, throw out the phone lines one more time if anybody wants to call in. And we're going to use the backup number. It's 201-257-5650 on a past ball show right here on mtrradio.com. Uh, like I said, next week we're going to have uh, Chris Bando, Phil Huffman, and perhaps one other player, which I will not name now because I want to confirm it first, uh, right here on the past ball show, MTR Radio Network. Um, I do want to get in on that poll, though. I mean, I do think it's something that, you know, I do want to get some baseball fans, and we're getting a little more, uh, you know, we're getting actually a lot more uh, fruition, a lot more traction going into my website right now, which I'm very proud of, johnpialli.com. Uh, you really you get a chance to go in there. You get my Bases Empty blog, which I'm going to start to promote a little more with some music on the site and everything. Um, you got all the audios, obviously, for this is show number 37 of the past ball show. So we got the audios available there. And I think, you know, with that, I'm going to get a little more interactive with everything, with all the traffic that I'm getting in there. And I want to see how it goes with this poll. Who is the greatest player of all time? Is it Ty Cobb? Is it Babe Ruth? Is it Ted Williams? And I put those three guys up there as far as the best ever. And and listen, I honestly, I do want to hear some feedback. I mean, if you listen to this show and you think somebody else if you if you think that somebody else you know is you know capable, and I think there's been plenty of great players in this game. I mean, you throw Willie Mays in, you throw Hannes. I'm sorry, uh, Rogers Hornsby in there, even Hannes Wagner, um, Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle. You know, you want to say Rafael Palmero, I'll probably laugh at you, but it, you know his numbers were good. Hank Aaron. You know, you want to throw in some other guys. I want to hear it. I mean, I do want to hear what you guys think. I mean, is is it is it all just the three of them? Is it Cobb, Ruth, and Williams? Or can it be opened up to a, a field that may include 10? Or do you want to throw a pitcher in there? I mean, you want to, you want to throw a guy like Cy Young in there? You know, Sandy Koufax, who I know didn't pitch that long, but was as dominant as anybody in ever, has ever pitched in his game. But do you want to throw a pitcher in there? And that's when we get into kind of the sabermetric thing, which I don't like. When you talk about war and, you know, how you compare pitchers to hitters, it's really hard to do. It's apples and oranges. It absolutely is the total opposite of each other. You can't tell me a pitcher is better than a hitter, and you can't tell me a hitter is better than a pitcher. But you could say hitters are more dominant than pitchers, and I think that's true based on stats. But you could go conversely and say, Hey, the best hitter, best hitters in baseball, get a hit three times out of every ten. So pitchers get hitters out seven out of ten times, for the most part. And obviously, hitters hit two fifty, two forty, two two hundred sometimes. So you could say pitchers are more dominant than hitters. So with that being said, does that sway the pendulum the other way and say that hey, the best players in the game? have to be pitchers. 
I think it's interesting. I think it opens up a very big conversation because I'm saying, and I do feel wholeheartedly, the best players in a game are position players. But if you're going to, you know, if you're, I'm going to point out the most obvious fact of the game of baseball is that good hitters get hits three out of every 10 times. That means pitchers get hitters out seven out of 10 times. So are pitchers better than hitters? I'll throw out the number one more time. This will be the last time. 201-257-5650. John Pialy, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Yeah. So we're talking, I want to talk right now a little bit about the 2012 Oakland Athletics. And I, for one, if you read my blog, was as down on them as I was on any other team, which included the Houston Astros. And this team is overachieved. They're over 500 right now. They're competitive in a league. They're still competitive in a league that about eight out of every ten teams, and I'm only talking about maybe three or four, maybe five, don't have a chance to make the postseason right now. And I think that's kind of crazy. I think it's, you know, it's a little silly. But most teams still have a chance, and the Oakland Athletics have overperformed to a point that I'm amazed because I had them being the worst team in baseball. And I started it out with the trade of Gio Gonzalez and Trevor Cahill and Andrew Bailey and just the effort to kind of rebuild and start back and go back to nothing which is obviously what they wanted to do. And that being said, this team has overperformed. And to be honest, they have not they have done it with their pitching because their offense really hasn't been that good. And you want to throw some numbers and I'll throw some numbers at you over what they have done offensively. But you're talking about Coco Crisp, Jamal Weeks, I know Brandon Inge was a last-minute guy. They got him from the Tigers after they released him. And Cliff Pennington, the shortstop, have all done nothing. Yoannis Cespedes, who is going to be a very good player, is doing okay, but he's not tearing the cover off the ball. They don't have a first baseman. All they've really gotten, and in fact, you know, Kirk Suzuki, the catcher, has been, you know, hasn't hit at all. All they've gotten is a good year from Josh Reddick, who I think should have made the All-Star team. 269, 20 homers, 43 RBIs. He's been their best overall hitter. And Brandon Moss, who's got 11 home runs and 90 at-bats. And really, other than that, offensively, they haven't done much. But what's happened is they have built a good, young, as well as for now, pitching staff. That starts with their starters and, you know, when you had Gio Gonzalez and Trevor Cahill anchoring your rotation and then you give them up for prospects, they're happy with what they've gotten out of, obviously, Tommy Malone, obviously, Jared Parker, two guys that they got in the Gonzalez and Cahill trades, respectively. Malone, 9-6, and six, 354 ERA. Parker, 5-4, and four, 286 ERA. And the ageless Bartolo Colon, who is backing up his season he had with the Yankees last year, with a 6-7, and seven, 380 ERA. And this is a team that doesn't score any runs. 
And I think their starters have done a great job. Obviously, a guy that I think gets no credit at all and really does need to be recognized as a very good pitcher, and that's Brandon McCarthy, who was a prospect with the White Sox organization, and this year is 6-3 and three with a 254 ERA. And I'll throw one more guy in there because I think it's an ironic story. Travis Blackley is a left-hand pitcher who a couple of years ago was in spring Mets as a reliever. He didn't make the team. He played a little bit in the minors. He has resurged. He has moved himself back as a major leaguer and has actually been their fifth starter this year. And you want to hear his numbers? 2-2, two and two, 263 ERA, 11 games, 7 starts. And that's a guy that's come from nowhere. I mean, he, was, he wasn't good enough to make the Mets bullpen a couple of years ago. And he wasn't even in the discussion. And he's, he, he's kind of come out of nowhere. And the bullpen has looked good. Ryan Cook, who they got from the Nationals, made the all-star team, of course. It's 2-2, two two, 9 saves, 137 ERA. And you know, it's not a bad run. Grant Balfour, who was the closer to start the season, has been effective. 2-2, two two, 7 saves, 312 ERA. And they also got two lefties who have done a very good job for them. Jerry Blevins is 2-0 and with a 2-5 ERA. And Jordan Niberto is a 2-1 with a 3.18 ERA. And that led, of course, to the releasing of Brian Fuentes, who did not get the job done. And Fuentes, of course, signing with the Cardinals as a free agent. But we're looking at a team with the Oakland A's, and I really do think that they are a legitimate contender. Can they make a wild card run? Eh, I think it's going to be pretty tough. I mean, they're actually going to have to go on a ridiculous run. They're going to have to go nuts. They're going to have to make a push to get not only to Anaheim or the Angels, but to beat Texas. And it's going to be hard. I can't see three teams making the playoffs in that division, especially with the East. The East, for the most part, every team in that division has been around 500, if not above it. And then you got the Tigers, who are making their run now. And, of course, the White Sox, who I think are for real. And if you're the Oakland A's, I think a playoff possibility is not really in the deck of cards. But let's be honest. This team deserves some credit. I was as down on this team as I was on any other Major League Baseball team. And I still, I still don't think they're as good as advertised. But they've, they've proven me wrong. They have proven me wrong. Even though I can't see this team making the playoffs, their manager, Bob Melvin, deserves credit. Here's a guy who went to Seattle, and I know the sustained success was not very long with the Mariners. He turned them around. Prior to that, of course, was with Arizona and got them to the playoffs. And that all being said, what he has done with Oakland has officially put him up there amongst the better managers in the game is he the best no I mean guys like you know guys like Joe Madden and I think Charlie Manuel still up there Ron Gardenhire despite his team struggling is a good manager Mike Sosha Ron Washington those are the better managers in a game I think you got to throw Bob Melvin in there because of what he's done now with his third different team to me he was a journeyman guy he was up for the Mets managerial job when they had the vacancy after Jerry Manuel was fired. 
And honestly, I didn't think too crazy of him. I didn't think too crazy of Terry Collins either. But both have actually done a very good job with their respective teams. And to be honest, I my respect for Bob Melvin has gone up a lot higher than it was before this season because he has done something with nothing. At least the Mets have a couple stars. The Mets have David Wright. The Mets have Johan Santana. You know, the Mets have gotten a ton out of R.A. Dickey this year. Who do the A's have? Who's the A's premier player? It's not Jonas Cespedes. He's, he's got 12 home runs. He's hitting about 230. Josh Reddick? Do half of the casual baseball fans know who Josh Reddick is? Probably not. And honestly, he has not been that dominant of a player. You're looking at a team that is not going the the you know, is not going the way that it needs to go. I mean, they don't have a star. Their pitching has gotten them to where they need to go, and I do think they deserve credit. But all of this is pinned on the manager. And you want to criticize managers for not getting the job done? Bob Melvin is a good major league manager, and he's proven it this year. And you may not agree, but he deserves credit for what he's done this year. And if you want to talk about Robin Ventura being manager of the year for what he's done to a White Sox team that was bad last year. You want to talk about Buck Showalter for what he's done with the Baltimore Orioles, making them competitive when they were expected to be amongst the worst teams in the league. And I do think there's a little parallel with what's gone on with the Orioles and what's gone on with the A's. But I will say this. The Orioles are have more of a talented team. They have very good players. I can't name too many players that would even be up there with some of the best players in the game. And when Ryan Cook, a guy who has nine saves, and yes, he has a one-something ERA, makes the all-star team as your representative, that means you're not thought of too highly. And I understand the Astros had Jose Altuve. But the Astros, in my opinion, were in the same category as the athletics. And I made probably a stupid assumption, and I jump around a little bit because I don't go with baseball perspectives. I don't say, hey, the teams in chronological order of appearance and record should be you know, recognized the same way the following season. And I make assumptions that are a little bit wrong, sometimes silly. And I predicted that the Oakland Athletics would have the worst record in Major League Baseball this year, even worse than the Astros. And you know what? If you said the Astros were going to have the worst record in baseball, you were wrong too. We were both wrong. Who would have thought the Twins would be this bad with Maurer and Morneau healthy? Who would have thought the Cubs would be this bad? Those are the two worst teams in baseball. The Padres, I don't think anybody was going to give them a chance to win the division, but they've been worse than people have expected. And if I was going to pick the worst team in baseball, it would be one of those three teams, either the Padres, the Twins, or the Cubs. And I would leave the Astros out of it. And that's amazing because when we talk about pure talent, the Houston Astros probably have the least amount of pure talent out of any team in baseball. And they pretty much finished it up. They pretty much wrapped it up when they made those last couple moves last year, trading Hunter Pence and Michael Bourne. But the Oakland Athletics, with as little talent as they have, 
are really the Cinderella team. And that's more than the Mets. That's more than the Orioles. If you're going to be objective and give a team credit that has come out of nowhere to have as much success as they've had, the the most improved team and a team that's come out of nowhere is the Oakland Athletics. Once again, it's John Pielli, Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. Before I end up leaving, I do want to thank Paul Spiljarek for joining the program today. Next week, I got Chris Bando. I'll have Phil Huffman, amongst other guests, to join the show. Nico Rizgo, who was a former player briefly with the Montreal Expos in 1990, looks like he might be able to join the show next week. And uh, we'll, we'll definitely check in. Eventually, we'll have Herm Winningham on the program. But we're going to wrap things up. I made a good comparison in my blog when it comes to the San Diego Padres of 2010 and the New York Mets of 2012. And obviously there was one glaring difference, one reason the San Diego Padres won 90 games that year, one reason that they have a better chance than the New York Mets, and that was the bullpen. And of course we went in, I went in with the blog to bullpen and what the Mets should do, blah, 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 blah. And honestly, I'm tired of talking about the Mets bullpen. I'm not going to talk about it anymore. But the Padres were a team not really predicted to go very far. I know they had Adrian Gonzalez that year. They had Heath Bell. But they got very good starting pitching. It was consistent. Similarly consistent to what the Mets have done this year. Clayton Richard, John Garland, Matt Latos, all won 14 games. Wade LeBanc, Kevin Correa kept them in games. Similarly to what the Mets have gotten with Dickey, Santana, Nice, and of course Dylan G is hurt right now. And Chris Young to this point. Offensively, they didn't really have anybody stand out outside of Adrian Gonzalez. And the Mets obviously haven't had anybody stand out as much as David Wright has. And obviously what it came down to is the Padres had a bullpen and a very good bullpen led by Bell and Luke Gregerson and Mike Adams and Joe Thatcher with some help from Ernesto Frieri, Ryan Webb, Edwin Mujica, and Tim Stauffer, who subbed as a starter briefly. If the Mets, and I'll leave you with this question, if the Mets make two additions to their bullpen and get it to a point where it's decent, can the 2012 Mets be the 2010 San Diego Padres? And remember, the Padres... Missed out on the playoffs to the San Francisco Giants. But would, be, would have been in the playoffs if there was a second wild card. So I'll leave you on that. Let me know what you think. Pass ball show. MPR this radio. This is empty blog. Go ahead,